You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm pleased to tell you that there's actually a publication here in America that's devoted to the life of the mind, that believes in learning for its own sake, and that requires something of its readers, namely curiosity, concentration, and commitment. The publication in question's been in business for 45 years, manages to make a small profit, and is called the New York Review of Books. Its longtime editor is Robert Silvers, and he's here with me today. Robert Silvers, welcome to ThoughtCast. Thank you. Let's start with a bit of history, Robert. The New York Review was born during a newspaper strike in the winter of 1962-63, which had shut down the New York Times, and apparently its book review section wasn't particularly missed. The literary critic Edmund Wilson's been quoted as saying that, The disappearance of the Times Sunday book section only made us realize it had never existed. So what was wrong with the book review at the time? How bad was it? Well, I'll tell you, it goes back to uh, a few years earlier when uh, I was an editor on Harper's Magazine, a job I took up after living in Paris and editing the Paris Review in Paris, in Paris. And when I joined Harper's, we thought of having a special issue on writing in America. And for that issue, I asked Elizabeth Hardwick, the wife of Robert Lowell, one of the great critics in America, to write on book reviewing. And she turned up with an essay called The Decline of Book Reviewing. And in that essay, she described what she thought was the sad state of the New York Times. And she said that it was rather gray, It was flat, it was mediocre, and it lacked, she said, the literary spirit itself. And she deplored the fact that in America we could not have a more lively, a more interesting, a more spirited book review. And I at that time thought that it would be great to have a new book review in America, but no one I talked to about it had the slightest hope for any such a new paper because they said you would never get advertising, you would never get people behind you. Then, during that long newspaper strike, my friend Jason Epstein rang up one morning and he said, do you know this is the only time we'll ever start a new book review without any money because the publishers are going crazy. The books are coming out inexorably and there are no book reviews. So anyone with a plausible book review should be able to count on a page of advertising from the publisher. So you went ahead, and your first edition, you printed 100,000 copies, and they sold out. Yeah. Well, before doing that, I got together with uh, Elizabeth Hardwick, who'd written that essay, who and her husband, Robert Lowell, and Jason's wife, Barbara, old friend of mine, and, we jo- and I asked her immediately to become co-editor, and she was. And she was co-editor with me until two years ago when she died. So we did everything together. And we started that book review in February of 1963 by making a list at night in the Harper's offices of the books we thought should be reviewed. And so uh, Mary McCarthy, W.H. Orden, Norman Mailer, Bill Styron, uh, Irving Howe, Alfred Kazin, dozens of the best writers in the world were willing to pitch in quickly and write these reviews for free. We went to a printer, 
Barbara and I were selling advertising by day, and we had piled up enough advertising to pay for that printer. The paper came out, 100,000 copies. We sent them all over America to college bookshops with a note saying, Your Honor, Your Honor, if you sell it, send us the money. They, we gave it to the news, a, a news distributor in New York. It sold out very quickly. So what happened was you did so well, by 1965, you were in the black. Well, the point is we kept control. No one could tell us what to do as long as we could pay the printer. We took very low salaries. We had a very small staff. But we kept going with the principle we should ask the people in the world of writing or philosophy or literature or politics who we respected the most. And we would try and persuade them to do book reviews in a in this new paper. You mentioned Mary McCarthy earlier and Norman Mailer. Yeah. In your fourth issue, you published a review by Norman Mailer of Mary McCarthy's novel, The Group. Yeah. Would you mind reading from it? I selected a rather long chunk, but I think well, it's I, worth it. I want to tell you that it was a very controversial review. Norman Mailer, in his book, Advertisers Myself, had done a, several pages going over the writers of the time. But he didn't mention Mary. So we thought, well, what would he think of her book? And we sent it to him. And he immediately wrote a rather brilliant, but rather tough review. Rather tough review. He said, it's no easy task Mary McCarthy has set herself. She has eight well-to-do young ladies moving through the 30s on the very outer fringe of events. And none of them has an inner passion large enough to take over the book and make it run away. Indeed, the only character one would not likely flee at a cocktail party, a rich, arrogant, green-eyed beauty named Eastlake, decides to separate from the book herself. She takes off for Europe after the first few chapters and does not get around to coming back until the book is almost done. She has in the interim become an open as opposed to would it be closet king, lesbian, which encourages the single medical prescription one can elucidate from the book. It tacitly states that a mixture of passionless goodness and squashed mendacity, precisely the lot of the average nice, rich, bright, young Protestant girls, is so regurgitative a violation of their nature that cancer or psychosis are now house percentage against any decent woman. No wonder Miss Eastclay left. She would have been unconvincing if she had remained. Still, Lady McCarthy is an unhappy hostess. What if you were to give a party for Christine Keeler and invited all your friends? Then Christine didn't show. What a party. What a riot to hear you, Robert Silvers, reading Norman Mailer's words with such gusto. But let me ask you, why did you pick Norman Mailer, who's this famous masculinist, to write a review on Mary McCarthy's book, The Group, which was about women? Well, I don't know what you mean by masculinist, but uh, in Norman's just-published book, The Advertiser for Myself, there was a lot about women, in fact, <laughs> And there are women throughout his, his novels, and he was a man who showed himself above all in that essay, in that book, to have a very acute sense of what was happening in modern fiction. And so it was not a question of man or woman. It was a question of Norman as an acute, critical eye. 
And he was indeed very acute and critical. Apparently, Mary McCarthy barely recovered from the review and thought it was the most brutal of her career. She may have thought that, but she, when I talked to her about it, she was characteristically funny about it and amused by it. And also, I'm sure she felt rather bitter about it too, but when we next asked her to do something, we asked her if she would go to Saigon for the New York Review. And she said yes immediately. So whatever her feelings she harbored, she was willing to go on and collaborate with us, and she did in many ways for the rest of her life. Of course, Robert, you weren't making all of these editorial decisions alone. You were co-editor with Barbara Epstein, who unfortunately died in 2006, and today you're the sole editor. How have things changed? Uh, How has the editorial voice changed since then? Well, that's hard for me to say. Barbara and I were intimate friends. We were very close and became so close as editors that we hardly needed to have any long talks with each other. We had a kind of code, a kind of secret code between us in which uh, we would just say a few words and we would immediately indicate a whole attitude toward a writer that we might want to use or a subject or a political question. And we both saw a lot of what we were doing as it's quite comic. It's quite absurd often. And we saw the silliness of much of the literary life. What is the mission of the New York Review of Books uh, or its editorial aesthetic? Well, our aim was to get the best writers that we could find, well-known or not so well-known, and give them the freedom to write about the books of the time, the ideas of the time, the politics of the time, in the way that they would feel they were free to do their best. And that couldn't have changed since her death. That's what we're still trying to do. Let me tell you, of course, that a lot of the time, the writer that you would love to have, you can't get. And so you try another or another or another. But in every case, it's not simply the competent, the perfunctory, the able performance that we're seeking, but something special, something more illuminating, something more that goes beyond any kind of conventional assessment. Let's back up for a minute. For people who aren't necessarily as familiar with the New York Review of Books, It's considered, by liberals at least, to be the premier journal of the American intellectual elite, although its detractors have called it musty, dusty, and dour. Its admirers call it august, and it's been consistently described as liberal, skeptical of government, old school, and elite. And I'm curious, how do you see (laughs) the term elite? What does that term mean to you? Well, I feel it's a loaded word. It's a loaded word that people use often in a rather pejorative way. And that may mean that they simply disagree or don't like the people we, we admire. I think we, the essence is that you pick as to write people you think are brilliant. You think that they have special perception. Now, others obviously will not like those perceptions. They might not like that. And so you have to accept that a magazine like that is worth anything will not be simply a neutral magazine. It won't be a forum. We have to accept that a magazine that's worth anything will have strong points of view. 
And what would your strong point of view be, Robert? Well, we, when Barbara and I both felt from the start that we simply shared, or perhaps intuitively shared, a notion about the danger and the unacceptability of bullying, repressive, and illegitimate state power. And so from the very first, we're critical. We're critical paper. We're very critical of totalitarian regimes, whether fascist under the Shah, let's say, in Iran, or the communist regimes ranging from Soviet Union to Cuba or to communist China. It was very fashionable during our, our, from 1963 on at various times to be very accepting of or admiring of, let us say, the Cultural Revolution in China or certain developments in the Soviet Union or and particularly in Cuba. In all cases, we were concerned about the rights of persons who were in difficulty, rights of persons who were being bullied, imprisoned, or in some way uh, tortured or uh, because they oppose the state. You actually, Robert, have translated a book on torture called The Gangrene, and it was about the torture of Algerian prisoners by the Paris security police in 1958. That's and of true. Of course, this brings to mind the torture by Americans today of Iraqis and others we've captured since 9-11. Yes, it's been a theme in the review. I think, again, here we are, Barbara and myself. We are quite free. We could do what we want. We could publish what we want. Thank goodness uh, we had enough circulation to keep the paper going. And so if it was a question of, of criticizing the CIA in Vietnam, for example, where there was a lot of torture, that is to say, used electric torture on Viet Cong they captured, or the horrible tortures in Cambodia, uh, or the mistreatment of writers by the Vietnamese communists, or, and now we come into the more recent war and the situation of the Iraq war, we have from the first, before the war broke out, we criticized its uh, illegitimacy. We made a strong case against it. In many, many articles, we have been taking up the horrors and what we think the particularly the unacceptable brutality of American treatment of prisoners. In a recent piece, uh, for example, Anthony Lewis, wrote eloquently about this, and it was called, the piece was called Official American Sadism. Mm. In other words, it wasn't a question of a few, just a few exceptions. Mm -hmm. If you're in a position of an editor who can do what he wants, you do have an obligation to care about people who are being uh, treated brutally, people who are being repressed, and that this concern about the elementary human rights, to me, is a kind of just a obvious, basic obligation that editors in our situation have. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm speaking with Robert Silvers, the longtime editor of the New York Review of Books, perhaps the preeminent literary and intellectual journal in America. Robert, despite the New York Review's eminence, it has had its detractors. Apparently, it got a bit stuffy after its heyday in the 1960s and 70s. But the Iraq War, as you were mentioning, changed all that. It revitalized the paper. Well, that's a bit of a, bit of a leap. It must be said that soon after we started, uh, Kennedy, John Kennedy was assassinated. 
and we under the um, in the Lyndon Johnson period, where the country became sucked deeper and deeper into the Vietnam War. But your critics really are referring to the post-Vietnam era. The post-Vietnam era. Well, it's. Uh, I must say that it's. I don't feel we ever had any terrible feeling of a great lapse, and maybe readers did. But this was the period of Nixon. It was the period of Reagan. Uh, and I think that in those years, um, we had kept a, a certain level of scrutinizing, critical, political, cultural journalism. And But of course, you understand that the New York Review is a very various paper. We've been talking about politics. But in every issue of the Review, you'll find an article, for example, on art. You'll find an article on a novel you'll usually find an article on a work of history. In other words, there are many different audiences that read the New York Review, and some of them, I'm sure, feel dissatisfied, and others maybe feel more satisfied. And for the editors, for Barbara and me, it was never a question of keeping them satisfied. We simply tried to publish the articles that we thought in each of these fields, science, art, literature, poetry, fiction, social sciences. We simply tried to find articles that we thought had some freshness, originality, imagination. And we knew that we sometimes failed. Well, your readership has improved over time. Now you have a circulation of about 136,000 readers. I'm curious what you know about these people. I'm going to assume that many of them are gray around the temples. They aren't that particularly young. Is that is that correct? I think that's true. I think that I don't know how gray they are, but I do think that they tend to be a rather mature readership, that many of them are, let's say, professors in university or their families. And it is, a, I suppose, a great defect of Barbara and me that we never relied on or even inquired about the nature of the audience. We simply thought that we should concentrate not on trying to please any particular groups, but to do what we thought was interesting. And if people liked it, great. If they didn't like it, well, too bad. So I don't really know too much about them, except that I believe they are highly educated, a lot of them. But if your audiences are in general mature, yeah. do you feel a need to attract younger readers if you don't doesn't the paper run the chance of becoming obsolete? Well, I feel that it's true that a lot of these people are mature. But it's true also that there's a certain kind of younger reader who does is very charged up about the New York Review and, and who you know write haranguing letters. I get as many as 100 letters a day from all over the world, especially emails now reacting to the paper. Many of them are from graduate students and young, young people. So somehow, somewhere, whether they subscribe or not, or whether they see the paper in a university library, or whether they're looking at it online, which is a source of millions of hits for us. Uh, it's I funny feel, to hear Robert Silvers use the word hits. Well, we've been very involved with the internet for many years. <laughs> we've had a website for years. Our publisher who took, who came to us in 1987, uh, Ray Hederman, one of the things he did was have an entire complete archive made of the New York Review from day one till today. And he and, also helped and, increase your circulation. And he did increase the circulation, and it, he did create this electronic archive that anyone can consult 
for a fairly small fee. And therefore, we are a big research tool for people even in high schools. So that, I think, has helped us survive as a paper with a, a certain range of readers. I'd like to draw you back to politics, if I can. One of the more sensitive topics that the New York Review of Books has addressed uh, forthrightly is uh, U.S.-Israeli relations. And your contributors have been consistently tough on Israel and also on the U.S. for its support of certain Israeli policies. For example, one of your contributors, the New York University professor Tony Jutt, has been accused by critics or they have implied that he's anti-Semitic. (laughs) <laughs> what has that been like for you? Well, what could be more absurd? Tony Judd is a, a son of um, of Jews from Eastern Europe. He is uh, <clears throat> someone who, when the uh, 67 war broke out, was so much a Zionist that he got on a plane and went to fight on the Golan Heights for Israel. He's been, uh, no doubt, a critic of Israel in the sense that he would be favoring the policies of, say, Yitzhak Rabin, or, as we now see, the uh, analysis of the recent prime minister, Olmert, who has has said that uh, the only solution for Israel is um, two states in which uh, which can each have their own workable life uh, and in which there would not be an imposition of settlements uh, or a continuation of settlements in the Palestinian territories, which are occupied. However, Tony Judd has written in your pages in the New York Review that it's a bit too late for the two-state solution, the settlements are too entrenched, and that the only solution really is a one-state solution, yeah. a bi-religious, bi-racial, open state. Well, in, the, in both in the article and in the, uh, and in the, there were a huge number of letters about this article, and Tony Judd said, of course he was speaking, not about some immediate solution. He was talking about a future possibility if, if the current trends of both birth rates among the Arabs and settlement of the Israelis continued. He was saying that he thought that would, if these trends continued, there would be a majority of Arabs in the uh, in Israeli-Palestinian territory. And then what would happen to democratic, in the case of democratic elections? And therefore, he thought that it would be uh, something that the Israelis should consider about whether or not a single state was now going to be the reality, the reality that had to be faced. So I don't think he was fairly understood. I don't think the article was carefully read. I think he was rather boldly proposing what was an extension of current trends. And, uh, but in, if you look at the major reviewers, uh, writers on Israel in the New York Review, they include, for example, Avishai Margalit, who is professor at Hebrew University and is one of the most respected philosophers in Israel, or Amos Elon, who I think for many years has been considered one of the great historians of Israel, one of the great journalists in Israel, and commentators on Israel. So if people are criticizing our coverage of Israel, they are coverage of criticizing um, much of the reportage and thinking of the best Israeli writers. So these uh, claims against the New York Review are really are claims against some of the most prominent and 
I think, admired writers in Israel itself. But it's not Israelis who are criticizing your coverage, is it? It's Americans. Well, these Americans uh, may might take account of the fact that when they're reading uh, these sometimes critical and sometimes, in fact, celebratory views about Israel, they are reading what we think is the most uh, reliable, the most interesting uh, commentary because precisely it comes from people who know the country so well and live there or have lived there. You also published a controversial article about a controversial subject, uh, a book by Stephen Walton, John Mersheimer on the Israel lobby. Yes. We published a review of their original article, which became a book, and it was by Michael Massing. And it was a very measured uh, article which acknowledged some of the power of the Israeli lobby, but also criticized the book or criticized the, the original paper. And why? Because... Uh, the author, Michael Massing, who's one of the great critics of the American press, um, felt that there should have been more by way of journalistic, close reportage of just what these Israeli lobbies do. And so I think our article was very measured and very balanced. And But it did, it did what I think many people would agree will show that there is an Israeli lobby, that it is quite powerful, that congressmen do pay attention to it, and I don't think it, that is a very controversial position. So why wouldn't the New York Times jump at a story like that? Well, the New York Times, I believe, did publish quite a lot about it, or maybe they didn't, but I remember a review of the book in the New York Times, and it may be that many papers felt that the whole issue was so touchy, and it is also true, for example, that when... Tony Judd, who wrote the famous article you, that we've talked about, suggesting that there were demographic and other reasons to think that the state of Israel would have difficulties in the future maintaining a majority. Um, Israel, that, an alternative? Was that the title? I, that's right. And uh, when he was going to be give a lecture at the Polish embassy here and the to a, a separate a independent organization, Pressure was brought upon the Polish embassy not to let him speak. And it is, and in the case of Mearsheimer and Wald, there was a, uh, some kind of foreign relations group that wanted to hear them, and, and uh, the pressure was brought to have them, someone else appear with them too. So there are pressures. There's no question there are pressures, and I think life is full of pressures, and you simply have to resist them. Pressures on you not to publish? We've had all sorts of pressures over the years, about not reviewing books or reviewing people making desperate efforts to get us to review books well. It's the, it's the actual game of literary life. It's constant pressure. People love books. They love authors or they hate authors and they threaten and they beguile and so on. It's a rather intense business. There's so much at stake. After all, you have to remember that for many writers, this book, the book they've written, is the most for them the most worthy and the most important extension of themselves. So it's their deeper self that's in question, their entire aspiration, their talent. And so their feelings about that are naturally intense, and that's great. We mustn't get into some notion that we're talking about um, books uh, like commodities that come in and out across the counter. They're each of them, and most of them at least, are very precious expressions of that took great work on the part of somebody. 
And so even a book review, it takes great work on the part of somebody. Well, I was going to say the New York Review is your expression. It's your soul and spirit. That is. It's what we've tried. It's our vision of what we think we should do. And it's a very, it's not, never a light thing to ask someone to review a book. Just think. Here's a book that they're going to have to read intensively. They're going to have to think about it, and they're going to have to write about it, and it's going to take time. It may take weeks out of their life. To ask someone to do that is a big act. It's a, it is a highly a, a tri- difficult act because you have to think carefully whether you really are going to ask that person to give up all that time and that work and that thought. So just asking someone to review a book is never a casual affair. And in addition, you don't reimburse them terribly much. No. We pay, I must say, competitively with the New York Times or with other papers, of our, uh, larger papers, but no one is going to get rich writing for the New York Review. <laughs> or editing for the paper? Well, editing, I must say I can't complain because our publisher, Ray Edelman, has been very generous with the editors including myself, given that we're not a big paper with millions of circulation or anything of the kind. But it is a paper that has survived, that has made money consistently, and that, if you look at it, is the paper where many publishers and university presses, many serious publishers, feel they can advertise to find a serious book-reading audience. So all those things together have amounted to survival, and for small magazines, survival is all. Well, that's the hope. And in fact, you've realized that over the last 45 years. But if you take a step back from your own publication, yes. I'm curious what you think about the health of book reviewing today. I mean, you see the reviews on Amazon that are done by amateurs. Yes. So what is an editor supposed to do at a newspaper, for example? Many of them have been cutting back or even eliminating their book review sections because they think there isn't an audience. They think it's too esoteric. How do they cope with this split-up, long, long long-tail audience that you're describing? Well, I think the uh, editors of newspapers face a whole series of problems which I don't profess to be an expert on because it's a very difficult world in which every day you put out a paper, which is extremely expensive to just to print. And at the same time, you are competing with a widening world of websites and internet information, which enormous numbers of younger people rely on for their information. And that is the key to what has happened to the newspapers. The whole generations are relying on the internet for their news, for their entertainment. And that and the conventional printed newspaper is clearly facing a crisis, and many of them have, in fact, succumbed. And so the book review sections of these papers had to be sacrificed, many of them thought, because they were not associated with advertising. They were not associated with money-making. And yet they're extremely difficult and often expensive to do because you have to find reviewers who can write well and they often have to be brought in from outside the paper. And there are thousands of books and the whole matter of selection and getting people to write on them takes a rather a a demanding staff. So it's rather an expensive part of a paper that probably doesn't pay for itself easily. And that has been the problem with book review sections and papers. On the other hand, there are a lot of publications on online now, which do mention books. 
And again, to go back to Amazon, I just have to read this quote to you that I discovered in my research for this interview, Robert. It's this fabulous sentence by James Walcott, who was writing a review of Gail Poole's book called The Plight of Book Reviewing in America. He wrote, her locus is the reader-reviewer star system at Amazon Books, which Amazon touts as a democratic yawp of the people. It's more like a carbonated burp. <laughs> Isn't that a great sentence? It is. He's such a good writer. He's written for us. He's a marvelously lively writer. A carbonated burp. Yes. <laughs> While we're on the subject of amateurism, reviewers yeah. and otherwise, let me ask you about the recent financial meltdown on Wall Street. Perhaps the result of amateurs pretending to be professionals, I'm not sure. But do you think Marx was right? Is capitalism dying of its own contradictions? Well, I think I'm uh, here. I'm. I don't pretend to be an expert, and it would be it would be absurd to do so. But I have published a certain amount about this, and particularly in a recent issue by George Soros. Months before this crash, many months, he predicted that there would be a major crisis. Now, recently, we published a huge article about his views and his recent book, which I believe is now a bestseller. Actually, it, in the New York Review, I would like to quote from yeah, that article yeah, about Soros's yeah. book. The review was written by John Cassidy, and he writes that, according to Soros, the period of history that the elections of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan ushered in has come to an end. And then he goes on in the article to quote Soros, which I'll do here as well. So what does the end of an era really mean? I contend that it means the end of a long period of relative stability based on the U.S. as the dominant power and the dollar as the main international reserve currency. I foresee a period of political and financial instability, hopefully to be followed by the emergence of a new world order. And I'm wondering, Robert, what this new world order might be. So Uh, am I. (laughs) I wondered about that myself, and I hope that literally within a few weeks, we're expecting an article by George, which we're going to explain further about it. And he will, I'm sure, have some ideas what will come out of all this. I do believe he thinks that the huge central functions that were played by the U.S. economy will now be in some way more widely shared. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atiyah, and I'm speaking with Robert Silvers, the editor of the New York Review of Books. Robert, let me ask you, what stands out in your mind as a particularly interesting or challenging edit? Something you might have had to struggle with or something the writer had to struggle with in your job as editor of the paper? Well, I'm not good at that because I believe that the actual relations between editor and writer are the most private thing in the world and that it's entirely between you and the writer and if anyone wants to talk about it, it should be the writer. The editor is really a middleman. The one thing he should avoid is taking credit for these articles. It's the writer that counts, the writer that counts. So when we, I have writers that, have, uh, that I've been particularly happy to work with over the years have been dozens and dozens, but when I think of Mary McCarthy and Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell, or um, as among young writers, Daniel Mendelssohn, who just has recently a book of his essays from us, or people, writers like Mark Danner, who has written on many different subjects for us and wrote about the elections of 2008. Those writers can make you feel exhilarated and inspired yourself just by the fact that you get such a kick 
at a reading network. Apparently, as an editor, though you won't take the credit, I do read that you are quite good at following your writers down their holes in holidays. <laughs> You're faxing them on Christmas afternoons, etc. Well, the thing is that there's <laughs> an a horrible and inexorable rhythm to putting out a biweekly paper. And you come down to a certain point and you either have corrections or you can ask a question or not. <laughs> and so we have to bypass many of the niceties of life. Do you regret anything uh, about what you've done with the paper? Have you ever made any mistakes that you're willing to confess to? I want to tell you that I feel there's a mistakes and something to regret in every issue. I look at article after article, review after review, and think how it could have been better. And so there are many developments in science, for example, we, I wish we had said more about. We have published some very fascinating, important articles on, let us say, blogs, on the Internet, uh, but there's a whole world of, let us say, video games that we should be doing more about. There are huge aspects of modern electronic life that we would hope to do more about and haven't. So, yes, I think there are many, many subjects that I think about with longing and guilt that we haven't done more. And that's what drives us, really. I know, Robert, you've edited several anthologies of New York Review articles over the years. Many. Do you ever want to write a book of your own? Well, I really do believe that I chose very early in life to be an editor because it seemed something I could do. And as an editor, I thought, unlike other editors in some cases, the one thing I didn't want to do was seem to compete with the writers. My thought was to bring out the best writing I could in the writers I admired. I have kept notebooks. I have kept diaries. And one day, if I am unable to do anything else, maybe I will write something. But I wouldn't count on it myself personally. And I'm mainly interested in the best writing by other people, not by myself. You're going to be 80 sometime soon, Robert. Have you chosen a successor for the paper? No, because... The, uh, the, we have some marvelous editors at the New York Review, senior editors, we're close collaborators. Uh, I would think practically any one of them might do a marvelous paper. It would be a different paper. And there are other people who would be candidates to, t to run the New York Review, and they might run it far better for all I know. But for the moment, we're, I must tell you, the main thing we're concentrating on is simply putting out the next issue an editor's life is concentrated on that. I'll let you get back to it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Robert Silvers, the longtime editor of the New York Review of Books on ThoughtCast. Please let us know what you think. To leave a comment, go to ThoughtCast.org and search for Robert Silvers. I'm Jenny Atia. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.